0: Welcome to the Trinity Table Talk Podcast, a resource for Trinity Anglican Church out of Littleton, Colorado. It'll be the goal of this podcast to serve as a resource for theological education and spiritual reflection for all those who might listen. I'm Andrew Winnegar, and yet again, I'm joined by Father Tim Suits, the man, the rector of Trinity Anglican Church.
1: It's good to be with you, Andrew. <laughs> uh,
0: okay, so we've been spending the last few weeks talking about the history of Anglicanism, how we got to where we are. And now we start talking about the theology of Anglicanism. Uh, and what a better place to start than the doctrine of God. Uh, so here's my first question. I've, I've noticed in seminary, and maybe this is just appropriate to the subject, but I've noticed that anytime I wrote a paper um, from paper to paper, class to class, I would always vacillate between different images in my head when I spoke of God. God as a person, God as mystery, God as a metaphysical abstraction, whatever. And this problem is even magnified when you consider all of the secular worldviews and all the religious worldviews that exist. So first question, what do Anglicans mean? When we use the word God or speak about God?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, Andrew. We mean what every Christian has always meant when we say God. Often we think that the Protestant Reformation was a Reformation of theology. It wasn't. The Reformation was a Reformation of soteriology, meaning the doctrine of salvation. It was a reformation of ecclesiology, meaning the way the church is structured. It was a a reformation of uh, sacramentology, meaning the nature and efficacy of the sacraments. But theology, meaning our talk of who God is, is absolutely in line with the historic, broad Catholic church, lowercase c we all stand together and recite the words of the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed, uh, which is kind of this early church formulation of what we mean when we say God, that he is one in essence and three in persons. And all of the debates that went around that uh, kind of culminated in this document, this creed. And the Reformers did not veer from that at all. The Reformers understood themselves as carrying on the great tradition of speech about God. As revealed in Holy Scripture. And therefore, when we look at the different confessions of faith, whether that's the Genevan Confession written by Calvin or or the Augsburg Confession written by Melanchthon and influenced by Luther, or the 39 Articles written by Cramner, we see that they all begin with proclamations about who God is, and they're all pretty much the same. In fact, the very first article of the 39 Articles is almost verbatim, the first article of the Augsburg Confession. And it claims to be just a restatement of the Nicene Creed. So when we talk about God, we have uh, everything in common, basically, uh, with a Roman Catholic that would speak about God, an Eastern Orthodox that would speak about God. We are simply Christians professing the name of the same God. We might disagree on how we are saved, but we don't disagree on who God is is so here's what the very first article says there is but one living and true god everlasting without body parts or passions of infinite power wisdom and goodness the maker and preserver of all things both visible and invisible and in unity of this godhead there be three persons of one substance power and eternity the father the son and the holy spirit
0: So already in the first article, we see the oneness and the threeness of God. And maybe it's appropriate to spend today's episode talking about the the oneness and then maybe the next episode on the threeness. Um, Tell me more about the oneness of God.
1: Yeah, I think that it's appropriate that next time we talk about the threeness of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he's three in persons, but he is one in essence or one in substance he is one in this act of of being himself. Because in reality, that's actually the order of scripture. The order of scripture is that God reveals himself as one, and then God reveals himself as three. But the question is, what does it mean when God says he is one? Because in Deuteronomy six, the Shema, I mean, it's absolutely central to who God is. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, first and foremost, when we say that God is one, we mean that there are no other gods. Every other God is a pretender to God, is an idol, is a pale representation of the one who actually is the divine. King David says so in, in this prayer in 1 Chronicles 17, there is none like you, O Lord, and there is no God besides you. So we, what we mean is that there can't be another God alongside God because God is the ultimate act of existence. There can't be two ultimates. He's the only one. Second, when we say that God is one, we mean that he is absolutely unique. He is number one in the sense that he is in a league of his own. Right? He is above everything else. He stands above all um, others that might pretend to be God. Isaiah 40 says this, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? What does that mean? It means there's only one like him. There's only one. Therefore, he is a thing completely unique to everything else. Now, here's where this becomes a problem. The oneness of God becomes a problem of, then how can we talk about God, right? If he's utterly distinct from everything else, how how can we talk about God? Uh, So some people would say all of our language about God is equivocal. Equivocal means that everything we say about God isn't real. It isn't true, right? God is wholly other, and therefore we cannot see him at all. He is completely beyond the horizon of being, and he's just engulfed in darkness, right? Well, that's not how the Scripture speaks about God. The Scripture talks about God as if we can know him to some degree. Now, here's another way that we can talk about God. We can talk about God in a univocal fashion. And that means that anything that we say about God is what God is actually like fully, right? So when I say wisdom, uh, you know, God is, is wisdom in the way that I understand wisdom. The problem with that is that God very quickly collapses into our realm of being, This is probably what Christians are the most comfortable with doing. My language about God is univocal, meaning it's one for one. But then what happens is God just becomes kind of number one on this great scale of being, right? He's like Zeus. He's like Zeus, yeah. He's just better than you at everything, but he's kind of like you, right? This is actually like what Richard Dawkins and all the new atheists are responding to. They think that that's what we mean when we say God because in an unpolished way, that's often what we think because our hearts and our minds are idol-making factories, as Calvin would say. So whenever we talk about God as univocal, we're doing disservice of who God, to who God actually is because Isaiah 40 says, to whom then will you liken God or what likeness compared to him? He's beyond that. So theologians have said, If God is is in a class completely of his own, and we can say true things about God, but they're not univocal, they're not perfectly identical to who God is, and they're not equivocal, meaning they're not completely different from what he is, it must be that our language of God is analogical. An analogical language says that it is true, but it is not complete. So here's an example. A mouse loves cheese. I love my wife, Laura. God is love. Each of those are true statements about love. Each of those have an analogous relationship. We can understand the connection that is drawn between them. And yet they are absolutely distinct from each other, right? But here's something that I think we don't want to hear, but is true. God's being absolute love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is further away from a mouse's love for cheese to my love for my wife. My love for my wife is closer to a mouse's love of cheese than God being the fullness of love. What analogical language does is say that we need to preserve the oneness of God, that he is in a league of his own. He is a -a one-of-a-kind kind of thing. Right? He's not even a thing. He's being itself, as we'll see in a minute. But I can still talk about him. And therefore, when I talk about God, I have to use language that God has used. And that language has been accommodated to me like an adult talking to a child, using images and analogies to help get across what he is like. But we recognize that he is infinitely more. Whenever I say love, I have to recognize he's infinitely more lovely, beautiful, good than I could ever dream. That's what we mean when we say he's absolutely one of a kind. And then finally, when we say that he's one, we mean that he is simple. He is complete. He is whole. Now, Andrew, you and I, we aren't complete and whole, Uh, we aren't simple. You know, often when we use the word simple, what do we mean? Yeah, it's uh, something stupid or um, base. Base, dumbed down, right? That's a simple reading of an argument, something like that. That's not what theologians mean when they say simple here. What they mean is God is not composed of parts. There isn't, you know, um, you know, a little bit of God over here and a little bit of God over there. He's the fullness of himself at all times. Now, you and I are co- fundamentally composed of two main parts, essence in existence. Our essence is the thing that makes us what we are. It's our limiting function, right? I have an essence of kind of a gangly, skinny, balding guy, right? And you kind of have the essence of, you know, a, a stocky, strong dude. Like, Gimli. you know, you're kind of Gimli-ish. yeah. yeah. In my youth, I was more like Legolas. I've become more like, I don't know, like Gandalf over the years or something. But Take your word for yeah, it. Yeah, take my word for that. Um, but we're different, right? But here's what we have in common. At one point, we were not. At one point, our essence didn't exist. And therefore, our essence and our existence must be distinct realities. Because at one point, our essence was given existence. However, in order for there not to be an infinite regress where just it's, you know, it's turtles all the way down, God must be the one whose essence and his existence are identical. Hmm. Because if not, then what happens? There must have been a time in which God came into being. And that would be a logical absurdity. That wouldn't be God. And then there would be no explanation as to why God existed either. There must be one whose essence and existence are identical, whose being is self-actualizing fully, whose what it means to be God is to be God. Hmm. His being is being being. You know, this is why, you know, when God addresses Moses in the burning bush, what does he say? I am who I am. He's saying, I am, meaning existence, is what I am. Now, the philosophers and the theologians, particularly St. Augustine, and then perfected by St. Thomas Aquinas said, this means that God is maximally, fully, overwhelmingly God at all times. He doesn't become more of God over time. He doesn't become less of God over time. He is the fullness of God because his act and his existence are identical. And therefore he is the fullness of himself at all times.
0: Yeah, that's so good. And I I see something you're correcting um, an old image of God that I've kept in my head of like, okay, God is love. God isn't just love, but he's pure love. He's infinite love. And it's the image almost comes up of like, if you were to bottle pure love and it's like, this is, this is pure love, but God's not that. No. He's the pure act of love being like spread throughout all of existence. And that's what it means for God to, for his essence and his existence to be identical
1: yeah, it, it's, it's an image that we can't fully get our minds around right. because it's like, think about like, you know, like, an um, you know, a kajillion stars exploding into one another, right? This idea of like existence fully actualized, right? He isn't beautiful. He's the maximum reality of beauty. He is, isn't good. He's the maximum reality of good. He isn't love. He's the fullness of. Of love, right, existing between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right. Calvin often tried to get at this. You know, he again, theologians were always grasping at images because God's fullness is always beyond the horizon. It's just out of reach, but we can see it. We're reaching for it. We're, we're looking at how God speaks of Himself in Scripture and saying, "Ah, this must be what He's like." And it's this this beautiful poetic process of speaking of the one true perfect God, he talks about him as a never-ending fountain overflowing with life. Mm. Overflowing with abundance. Overflowing with goodness. He's the one that can't be exhausted because he doesn't have a limitation to exhaust. He's the one whose love can be Infinitely extended to his creation because, because it's not a limited resource. It's the fullness of what it is at all times. Mm. The oneness of God means that he is one in his act of being God. And that means he is the fullness of existence, the fullness of being, and the fullness of all of his attributes that we get to and we see in the articles. Often we think about the articles, we think about all these things as different realities, right? You know, think about it like this. And this is how we have to talk as humans. There is but one living and true God, everlasting without parts, uh, without body, parts, or passions, of infinite power, wisdom, and goodness, the maker and preserver of all things, both visible and invisible. That's all saying the exact same thing. God is maximally God all the time. And that means he is the fullness of life. He is the fullness of truth. He is the fullness of existence. Therefore, he's everlasting. He's without body because a body has a limitation, right? It starts here and ends there. He can't have that. Parts, because if you started dividing up God, you can't infinitely divide up an infinite being. He's the fullness. And he's without passions. You know, I think a lot of people get hung up on that one, Andrew, the passions one. Um, But all that means is that God doesn't react to the world, right? Uh, Passions is a very technical term in theology, and what it means is, you know, a reaction to an outside stimulus, right? Someone bumps me, I spill coffee on myself, right? I get mad, right? God isn't like that. If God is maximally himself at all times, and you can't add more to him, (laughs) he's never responsive, he always moves out of the infinite plenitude of what he already is. We perceive it as responsive because we're limited creatures. But from God's perspective of the one that is infinitely himself at all times, you know, it isn't responsive. It's simply God being God. And in times, God being God is wrathful. And at times, God being God is loving. But all the time, it's simply God being the fullness of God. Yeah.
0: That, uh, I think in the past, and we've had conversations about this, I've gotten hung up on that word passions or like talking about the, uh, impassibility of God. And, but I'm encouraged by that. Um, I, I was talking to someone even the other day of, um, what was it? It it was, somebody was discouraged where, with where they are in their life right now, as compared to, um, having like a really profound experience of God in the past, but to be able to like, no, uh, God is impassable. And for us, what that means is that God's love has not changed his, not just his love, this like general disposition towards us, but this active love that's uh, penetrating every corner of our life has not stopped. It hasn't changed. It hasn't altered. And, and there's like a lot of, there's a lot of comfort, mm-hmm. a lot of comfort in that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and then we get to that line of, of infinite power, wisdom, and goodness. And God is, God is pure act. We hear more about the, the nature of, of God's godness, and then this starts to put some character to it. Um, Tell me more about that.
1: Uh, Yeah. I mean, obviously, we can see some of them and they make sense, right? Power. You know, he is the infinite overflowing act of existence. That's definitionally what power is, right? He is the definition of power. Wisdom. All wisdom is simply that which participates in God's perfect act of existence. And foolishness is when we Depart from God's perfect act of existence. But the one I really like is goodness. Because what is goodness? William Norris Clark, probably my favorite Thomistic philosopher, uh, I think it was from New York or, or something like that, um, he, he, he comments that goodness is that which is lovable. That which are we see and we are drawn to. That which we say, uh, that, that is worthy of me pursuing. And God is infinitely worthy of pursuit. God is infinitely worthy of our loves. God is infinitely worthy of our passions. And this is why creatures like you and me can exist in the presence of God forever and it never gets old. You know, I've, I've heard this before that, you know, Heaven isn't like a, a worship service because an eternal worship service because that would be boring, right? And I remember when I was young, I kind of needed that word because I thought, you know, I was like, oh man, heaven doesn't even really sound that fun. I'm not sure if I really want to go there, but that's because I didn't have an understanding of God as God. I thought of God, frankly, as most people do in in youth, and they grow in, into hopefully a more nuanced understanding of God. Is God is just the most powerful being among beings, right? He's Zeus, but he's a Zeus that loves me. He's a good Zeus. He's a good Not Zeus, right? Whatever Zeus is. <laughs> yeah. Um. It, it, but at the you know at the end of the day that, that's going to get pretty boring. Mm. However, what if God is the fullness of being, the fullness of beauty, the fullness of truth, the full, fullness of goodness, and therefore the one who will always be drawing in our love. Right. So in C.S. Lewis's uh, the um. um the last battle, right? The, the, the children are in, in Narnia. They're, they're in Aslan's land, right? And they're pursuing him and they keep going further up and further in. And why can you keep going further up and further in with God? Because he's infinitely good and therefore infinitely draws us to himself. Now, why do we think, and here's where I want to close, Andrew. Here's where this all becomes really pastorally important. Here's where this all becomes really pastorally important. Often our view of God is that God is changeable. And if God isn't changeable, then God can't relate to my suffering. And then God doesn't care about me. Have you ever heard uh, that kind of thinking before? Or even maybe even felt that kind of thinking? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, here's the problem with it. When we say God has to suffer in his very being in order to relate to my suffering or God has to change because there are passages in scripture that say God changes even though I would argue those are anthropomorphic meaning God using human language to accommodate us here's what happens is if we get rid of this idea that God is perfectly one unchanging you know without passions the fullness of existence then at some point God could change his mind about you If God is a never-ending succession of events, you know, like you you and me, you know, we change over time. We are absolutely convinced something is a good idea and then we get counter-evidence and we say, no, that's not really a good idea anymore. What's to stop God in two billion years? When we're in heaven and we've been worshiping for two billion years, what's to stop him from saying, you know, I've kind of grown out of this. I'm over it. And to erase his covenants and erase us. In theory, there is nothing to stop that. He's given us a promise right now that he won't do it, but who's to say if God is changeable that he won't become the kind of God that doesn't care about his promises anymore? He could. The only way that we can be absolutely sure that God is the same for you yesterday, today, and tomorrow, that if he has chosen to love you by the sacrificial life, death, and resurrection of his son, and absolutely nothing, nothing can change that, is if that choice is firmly grounded in the God who doesn't change. Mm. You need this to be true, and I need this to be true. Mm. Because if we don't, we do not have the security that will hold us eternally. Mm. And I think there's something else too, Andrew. If God can suffer, if he isn't the fullness of goodness, the fullness of of joy, what what some theologians call bliss. I love that word. Some theologians, they hate it. I love the word bliss. He's perfect bliss. If he's not, then there is just absolutely no safe harbor left. At some point, we need some place to run to that is a shelter from the storm, a harbor Uh, from this world of chaos that we are in. And God promises to be that safe shelter for us. The one place we can run to that says, you know what? I am absolute joy. I am absolute goodness. You can come to me and rest in my presence forever and you're never gonna be caught off guard. You're never gonna be brought into suffering. You can find your peace in my bliss. And that is the joy and the hope of the Christian. That if we've been elected into the life of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit only by grace and brought into it by the sacrificial life, death, and resurrection of the Son, we have a place where we can go and find shelter from the storm. That's, that's the good news of the God who doesn't change. In a world of change where we don't know what we can trust and what's up and what's down, it's one place where we can go and know exactly who we are and who God is is in the presence of the unchanging, one true God of the universe, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.
0: That's good. Well, I think that's a good place to end this episode. Uh, In the next episode, we'll be discussing the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity. Thank you for joining us on this episode, and we hope to see you in the next one. For more resources or information about Trinity Anglican Church, please visit trinitylittleton.com.